Each week as a church, we have teaching from the Bible. For the past term, we've been going through a teaching series that we called Centerpiece, where we were looking at the person and work of Jesus, the centerpiece of Christianity and of our lives. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be starting our next major series, if you like, that we're going to be talking about the church, what the point of the church is and God's plan and vision for the church. For the next few weeks, however, we're going to kick it Old Testament, which if, I find if you put the word kick it in front of anything, it makes it sound cooler, doesn't it? Not many people would say reading the Old Testament is cool, but we're going to kick it Old Testament and we're going to read from the book of Jonah. It's a book that was written over 1,500 years ago and familiar to many people because on the surface it's about a man who runs away from God and gets eaten by a fish. And if you've grown up going to church, you know that that kind of a story is like a, a dream ticket for a Sunday school teacher because, I mean, it's got craft activities instantly available for it. But on the surface, that's what it's about. But underneath, if you like, or the book as a whole's main theme is more about the mercy and kindness of God, even in spite of the selfishness of his people at times, or in Jonah's case, this prophet. Uh, now, I, I, when I became a Christian, I... I learned to Bible study, learned to get into the Bible um, during one long summer, the summer of 2005, um, where me and this girl from my class, we would sit in her summer shed every, every day during the summer holidays and read the Bible together. She was a Christian. I was a Christian, a baby Christian. Um, I used to say that I was the only Christian in the village. Uh, there certainly wasn't many of us in the town that I was from that I knew and for a summer, we just we read this book and we talked about it. And, and I, I think I learned some things there. I fell in love with this book. And not so much this book, but the one that this book tells me about. And as, as a result, I suppose I kind of set my life course for trying to be someone who listens to this book. And then as a church, we're trying to be those who listen to the God who speaks to us in this book. We come under this book's authority. And so today, I thought we'd do a bit of a, just a, a walkthrough and a Bible study of chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1. Um, when I used to meet with Claire in her summer shed, we would pray together, we'd read the Bible, and then we'd reread it and talk about it as we went. So I thought we'd do a bit of that together. Let's just pray and we'll get into Jonah chapter 1. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of coming to you this morning, the God who is an oasis for us and not a terror to us, the God who offers us rest and restoration. I pray, God, that this morning as we sit under your word, you'd speak to us. Lord, in a, wor in a world where there's plenty of advice about all kinds of things, pl plenty of information about all kinds of things, we want to be those who hear the word of God now into, cut into our lives, not just advice for life, but the good news of the gospel. So please come and speak, God, as we read this. Amen. Amen. Let's read from Jonah chapter 1. It's a book in the Old Testament that's hard to find. It kind of moves around and jumps in between different books. Um, but we've got it on the screen if you can't find it in your Bibles. This is what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship 
into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to each one, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your, where, what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it? What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may grow quiet and may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to try to get to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out, called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. A great fish came and swallowed up Jonah. For some people, that's enough to struggle with the authenticity or the historicity of this book. And I've heard people over the years try to defend what goes on here. and Say, oh no, there have been instances in history where things unusual like this have happened. I've read things like that in books, they say. Some people I've heard almost take the opposite tack and say, listen, it's the Bible. I trust the Bible. And if the Bible says that a fish swallowed Jonah, I believe it. If the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the fish, I'd believe it because we trust this book. I don't know what you think when you read things like that. For me, I believe this book and what it says. I believe the author is writing historically about something that took place. I believe it also because Jesus believed it. Jesus referred to this story several times. And I trust the Bible, not because the Bible even tells me to. I trust the Bible because Jesus did. And Jesus is a man who predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. And if anyone can do that, I suggest they're worth trusting and listening to. But when you read a story like that, it does force us to, or it confronts us with our attitudes of belief or unbelief. What do we think? Because Jesus believed it, I think as a church and as Christians, we are called instead to humble ourselves and be humble in our attitude towards this book. We might live in the age of Google, but we don't know everything. And we don't know the mind and the ways of God. But as we read this, I always find the, the Bible slightly amusing. I, I'm not sure you're supposed to, but it is amusing. Um, when it says the ship threatened to break up, I love that. I have this vision of a boat saying, I'm going to break up. Um, or perhaps there's the, the, the thing that stands out to me is the, is the dark, the black comedy moment in this where they say to Jonah, who are you? And he says, I'm a Hebrew, I fear God. 
I'm not sure you do, Jonah, up until this point, at least, anyway. But I think this story, as much as there's lots going on, is a story that reveals to us a prophet in crisis, um, someone who's having something of an identity crisis, at at least. He says, this is who I am, but his behavior doesn't show that. In fact, the way he's behaved up until now hasn't looked like that at all. And Jonah's day is made even worse by the fact that he gets told off and rebuked by people who don't even know God. He's fast asleep and they say, we're all praying. What are you doing? I don't know what you think the church's main problem. Um, Not this church. I mean, you might have ideas about this church, but the church in general, Christianity at large in our country, everybody, it seems, has an opinion about what's really wrong with the church. The church in this country, people would say, seems to be in crisis. When I first moved to Seaford and was um, helping to lead in the church here, there were, in that first year of leading it, a number of people left. And uh, the first family that left, they said they were leaving for one reason. And then another family left a few months later, leaving for the opposite reason. So one family left and said, you're, you're not impressive enough. You're not like, if you know Hillsong, you're not like Hillsong enough. You're not um, showy enough or you're not excellent enough in the way that you do things. I thought, okay, we want to learn from that. But then another family left and said, you're too showy. <laughs> you're, just, you're too like, into all of this other stuff that's not important. And I thought, huh, everyone's got an opinion about what's wrong with the church. I just finished reading a kid's book to my son by David Walliams, the comedian. And he makes it clear what he thinks is wrong with the church and why the church is in crisis. Throughout, it's, it's a book, nothing to do with the church, but there's a, there's a vicar in it. And um, she, this vicar goes around and tries to drum up interest for people to come to her church. And he keeps making the point that no one is in the church. The church is empty. Just as like an incidental aside in the story. And then in the last chapter, this vicar, she marries her girlfriend and the church is full because of this gay wedding. And David Williams' point is very clear. The reason the church is in our country or in crisis is because Christianity and the church is outdated and it needs to wake up and catch up to the times. So I was reading this story with my son and I had to stop and say, do you see what David Williams is doing, son? This point that he's trying to thrust upon you, a naive child, that this is what's wrong with the church. And he said, Dad, just read the story. Anyway, it's very important things like that, that we don't get, uh, just to kind of wash over us and go, oh yeah, it's okay, fine. What's clear is that Jonah's forgotten who he is. He knows what the right answer is. I fear God, but he's lost the reality of that. And when the church or when believers behave like this sometimes it takes a storm and the belly of a big fish to sort them out and for Jonah his problems though they they begin a long time before he gets thrown into the sea and in many ways he's like us that's why I like Jonah I think that's why we like him he acts as a mirror to many of us Uh, he's the one of the original anti-heroes we see his flaws and find ourselves in them at least I do well let's let's read through it together and draw out some of the things that it says So it starts, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. The book starts very suddenly with the word now. And it starts with a phrase that's common throughout the Bible. The word of the Lord came. It doesn't tell us how the word of the Lord came, but it tells us that God spoke to Jonah. There's something about words and the words of God that when he speaks, He creates meaning and order and shape out of chaos and aimlessness. We see it in creation. 
the universe, it says it's formless and void, there's chaos, and God speaks. The words of God create. They bring order out of chaos. Jesus himself said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we long for God to speak to us. We long to be able to say the word of God came. He's brought direction. He's brought meaning and sense out of this pain that I'm in. I hear that a lot from people. I just want to know what God's word is for me. And yet when I read this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, I can't help but hear echoes of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. That God himself has come to each one of us with the now word into our lives and situations of Jesus, the word of God come to bring order to our lives, come to bring forgiveness and hope and shape out of otherwise senseless chaos. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah's introduced to us in relation to his father, which in part is just a common way of identifying one another in the ancient world. Certainly in the Bible, it is, at least it is, the son of so-and-so. But it, there's significance in it as well. Because for better or for worse, and for many of us you would say oh, it's for worse, for better or for worse, we are sons and daughters of a father and a mother. This statement grounds Jonah in history. And it stops us going, oh, it's just a parable. It's just an idea. It grounds us in history and says, he is a man of a father, as you and I are. And it's to a man in history that God comes then. God, the eternal word, came to a time-bound man destined to die. And we don't know anything about Amittai, Jonah's father. We do know that he fathered a prophet. He raised someone that God spoke to. He raised someone that God loved enough to come and speak to and bring direction to his life. Again, it's not really a point that the text is making, but as I was reading it, it strikes me again the significance of what we do when we raise kids or when we interact with one another. We are engaged in things of eternal significance. Every person in this room is someone that God loves and speaks to and cares for. I, I listened to this um, author speak recently and he was addressing a, a crowd of Christians and he said, he was, he's a very popular author, he said, listen, I'm a writer. I create stories and words that someone reads. A lot of people don't read and they come and they go. But if you're a parent, you're someone who creates a childhood. You're raising immortal souls. And often mums would say, oh, I'm just a mum. As if being just a mum is nowhere near as important as being in business or having a career and spending your time and energy to increase someone else's profits. But you're, in, you're a career person. The Bible has a lot to say about the importance of parenting. Um, but that's who Jonah is. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Let's read on. Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish. It said it a few times now. He's going to Tarshish, by the way. The author's quite keen that we understand this. And then he says, Away from the presence of the Lord. 
This is the heart of Jonah's identity crisis, just in these two verses here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Wow, God speaks to people. Now Jonah, a man in crisis, gets up and goes in the opposite direction. There's a map here of, of Tarshish, or the, the regions that this, this, these verses are talking about. So you've got Joppa, where he goes down to, and Tarshish that he's heading for, and Nineveh. So Jonah's willing to travel 2,500 miles or 2,000 miles in the opposite direction just to get away from God's call on his life. That's not normal, is it? <laughs> if God speaks, I, I just, I mean, this is the days before, you know, safe travel and aeroplanes. Jonah's problems, as we've said, start a long time before he gets thrown into the sea. He's forgotten a few very important truths. Let's look at some of these. Firstly, Jonah has forgotten that he belongs to God. He's a prophet. He's supposed to speak for God. He's supposed to obey God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. <laughs> I think it's quite amusing. And so Jonah rose and you're like, ah, he obeyed me. And you can almost imagine Jonah, the word of the Lord says, arise. And he's like, I am getting up, God. I am rising. I'm just going in an opposite direction. You can, maybe he's fooling himself, thinking I'm obeying God. I'm arising, doing what he's told me to do. But in the way that he's behaving, it's clear he's forgotten. I belong to God. Now, as modern readers, we have sympathy for Jonah because what we do we're modern we're postmodern. even oh everyone's got their story to tell and maybe he was abandoned as a child and maybe he's had a dysfunctional father maybe Amatai didn't treat him very well growing up or um here's a hard mission I mean it's Nineveh it says that great evil of that city's come out again I mean Nineveh is an, an evil place a wicked place uh, historians would tell you that so we have sympathy for this man maybe he just needed a rest give the guy a break Maybe God's the baddie here. The truth is that God owns your life. Every breath that you breathe comes as a result of God's kindness to you. It's not just, I just breathe because that's what I do. The Bible is clear that every part of life is something that's orchestrated by him and given to us by him. What that means is that every decision in your life, from small decisions to big decisions, it's a decision that you cannot make independently of God's ownership and call on your life. A friend of mine leads a church uh, away from here, and he's going through, a, he's going through a, a brutal couple of years in leading this church. There's some horrible things going on here. And I was with him in November at a conference, and he was, I mean, he's a man in his 50s, a man that I'm greatly inspired by. I think he's remarkable. But he was just a broken man in tears about how difficult the church is to lead, about some of the things that are going on in the church. And he's just thinking, I just want to quit. I just want to do something else. But someone else was with him, a wiser, older man, and said to him, God has not given you permission to quit. You belong to God. You cannot quit. And I saw him a few months later. It's still very hard, but he's, he's got some resolution, determination. God's directing and us belonging to God, if you like, I think it has probably less to do with our jobs and what we do than it does to do with how we live. Sometimes as Christians, we can become very anxious about what job should I do, all of the major decisions we can spend a long time, sometimes causing ourselves a great deal of anxiety worrying about them, whereas I think the Bible's emphasis on belonging to God is more about the way that we obey, the way that we do things, the way that we live our lives. Us belonging to God 
has to do with our internet browsers and our histories. It has to do with our relationships, our sex life, how it, our in, integrity with things of the law, our speeding, how we treat our neighbors, how we spend our money, what we're devoted to. Jonah's forgotten that he belongs to God. and So all of his other things he's forgotten as well. But as Christians, we belong to God. Everything that we have, everything that we do is owned by him. He's also forgotten who God is. Psalm 139 says, says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from you? The point being nowhere. You can't run from God. He's omnipresent. There's nowhere that God isn't. Jonah knows that, but he's forgotten exactly who God is because he thinks I can run away from God. I can do my own thing. He's forgotten as well his role in the world. He's not just a prophet. He's supposed to be someone who's to represent God to the world. The original call over his family was that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Like your job is to go to the nations and bring them a message from God. And because of who God is, it's a message always of blessing, even when it's a message of rebuke. But Jonah avoids going to the nations. Why would I want to go spend time with the unclean, the unwashed, the pagans of Nineveh? As we've said, Nineveh is a nasty place. But the truth is you'd expect the pagan nations of the world to be nasty places. They don't have the light of God. They've never heard God's teachings or moral decrees from God. They don't have the word of God. So you'd expect it to be nasty. But Jonah refuses to go to the people living in darkness. To the point that the pagan sailors themselves have to shame him. There was a commentary that was written on this chapter and a sermon that was preached. It was titled, The World Rebuking the Church. Because it's not just Jonah that behaves like this. It's often the church that behaves like this as well. It's a shame on the church when the church behaves in a way that it pulls up its drawbridge and it it specializes in creating safe spaces and communes for Christians to hide out in amongst the evils of the outside world. We're called, we've been given a mission at the very beginning of Christianity to go. God's always the God of the go. Go to Nineveh. I don't want to. Go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of every nation. To which the disciples went, no. I mean, if you read the story, they didn't say no. I mean, maybe it's, maybe, it's not written down. But what happens is Jesus says, gives them this message about go to the nations. And then he goes up into the clouds. And they're standing there staring for so long that an angel appears and says, what are you doing staring at the sky? Get going. He's giving you a message. And they're like, yeah, but I, I mean, this doesn't happen every day. We can have sympathy for these disciples. This, I mean, Jesus has just gone into heaven. like He's ascended through the clouds. What are you doing staring at the sky? Go. And Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit's poured out. The church is given boldness and power and courage. And they still don't go. And then if you read the book of Acts, it requires persecution to break out. <laughs> it requires difficulty. And then the Christians, they go, okay, fine, we'll go. We have to go. We've got no choice. And the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. That's the role of the church. I believe that we're here to get messy, to not just create safe spaces and communes. We're here to be good locals, to be good neighbors to the people around us. We're here to become pillars in a community because we've, we've been given the light of the gospel. We're not to keep it to ourselves. As much as we might want to just go to comfortable churches, the world needs Jesus. The world needs a saviour. It's dying for lack of a saviour. 
And as much as we want to settle sometimes, we mustn't. We mustn't resist the provocations of God to say, come on, go, go again, try again, pray, get involved in your community, make some friends in this town, give yourself to your neighbours, invest yourself in the lives of your colleagues. Go, 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 because we've been sent. Jonah's forgotten. That's his role in the world. And the church, sometimes to its shame, forgets that's our role in the world. If God just wanted worshippers, he could wrap the whole thing up right now. And we could worship perfectly in his presence in heaven. But until then, mission exists because worship doesn't yet. Until then, we're on mission now. There's another thing that Jonah's forgotten. Uh, The other thing that stands out is that Jonah, and this perhaps is the most significant one, so Jonah's forgotten the source of life and happiness. It says that Jonah runs away from the presence of God. He leaves the presence of God. It was the presence of God, this omnipotent, omnipresent God who's everywhere. He had decided to presence himself uniquely and specifically and specially among a people. And it was that presence that set them apart from the world. They're not more moral, they weren't better, but they had the presence of God with them. I mean, David gets so ex- King David in the Bible gets so excited about this presence that he, he dances in his underwear before it. He says, this is incredible. We have the presence of God amongst us. He's overwhelmed with joy. In Psalm 51, where David's caught in sin, his main concern, he says, don't cast me out your presence. He's been caught David's become a murderer and adulterer. He's been caught red-handed, so to speak, and his main concern is, don't cast me out your presence, whatever you do. Psalm 16, 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When Christians are casual about God's presence, They're casual about the source of their life and their joy and their power and they're heading for a storm. There's a lot of dead or empty churches in this country. And the problem, mostly, isn't because they're not current enough, isn't because they've stood their grounds against uh, a rising tide of secularism. It's not because the church is irrelevant. And large, it's when the church just loses its wonder at the presence of God among us. When you lose or you become casual with the presence of God, empty churches follow. We become casual towards sin. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jesus has come to us. He's called us his friends. He's called us his people. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you and you'll bear fruit. If you remain in me, I'll remain in you. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. To which the church has said, yeah, we'll have a pretty good job at trying though. I had a friend when I was growing up, I had a friend called Jenny. And um, we used to get on well. She was a believer. We used to go to church together. But almost every week when we were talking about God and the Christian life, she would lament that, oh, four years ago, I used to be so passionate for God. I used to love God so much. Four years ago, oh, my life back then was brilliant. Every, every week for years, she would just talk about this oasis, this high point in her life. Whereas now, 
Where's God's presence? I'm not fascinated, not excited by it. In reality, it scares me when I see Christians who are casual about God and church rather than hungry. The church, or coming to church, can become an event for spectators. But if it does that, it may as well be a pagan temple because that's how they behaved. We go to temple, they go to temple to offer their sacrifices, to try to get their lucky charm, to do what they wanted done for them, and then they go home again. And then the Christians emerged on the scene and suddenly built communities of love and radical intimacy and friendship centered around this wonder that Jesus was among them in their midst. Christians would break bread together and every time they break bread, they remind themselves the presence of our Lord is here. He's absent in body, but here by his spirit in each one of us. That was what made Christians so different. And when I say it scares me, when I see Christians and churches like that, I'm I'm talking about myself as much as anybody else. When I sing songs and go through the motions, or become dutiful in study, or when I lose an expectation for prayer, when I behave like an atheist in my prayer life, it worries me. I think it should worry us. But I, years ago, I, I dug out some old journals. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I would go to church. It was all new to me. I didn't grow up in a church home. I used to go to church and sit there and take notes about everything and write down everything, what's God saying to me. These days, I might go on Google if I need to find a Bible verse. At times, it scares me. When we worship, we ought to be struck by the incredible reality of God's presence and our expectation for him to come and do things. And that's often why churches are empty, as I mentioned. That's why more people go to car boot sales than go to church on a Sunday because often Christians act like they don't really want to be there. <laughs> don't, don't we? I'm not speaking of you. I'm saying of myself, my own laziness in these things. I'm like Jonah. I see in Jonah a lot of myself. His crisis is actually mine. Jonah's crisis of identity is actually then, it's a crisis of devotion, I think. And ours is too. This is going, reading on. We're not going to get through the whole chapter as we walk through it. But But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the sailors were afraid and each cried to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and lain down with fast asleep. So the captain came and rebuked him, as we said. What I think we see in this chapter as well is the reality that you can run from God in two ways. Often people say there's two ways to live, living for self or living for God. It's true, but there's two ways to live for self. It's two ways to run from God that we see, at least in this chapter, and I think in a lot of other places in the Bible as well. We can run by deliberately disobeying God, deliberately disobeying all authority, by being licentious and rebellious by nature, or just being hedonistic. The sorts of pleasure-seeking individuals that you think, oh, you'd never find people like that in the church. They're at parties and out you know, drinking. and Oh, you wouldn't find people like that in the church. We call them prodigals, people who've left God and just run away. The sailors are like that. 
Each of them are worshipping their own God. They've all got their different preferences for how they want to live their life. They've all got their different gods, the different things that they think are most important and how they should live. But also, you can run from God by being very moral or by being very religious. Jonah's like that. He might think, I've served God. I've done my time. I deserve a break. I've done what God wanted. He owes me. I'm not going to that pagan city of Nineveh. To which the remarkable humor of the story is that Jonah runs because he doesn't want to go spend time with the pagans. And so God chucks him into a bucket load of them on the boat. He's asleep while they're all crying out to their gods. And Jonah, this religious man, thinking, oh gosh, I can't be around them. Well, some run from God by being good. I've paid all my taxes. I recycle justification through recycling. I'm a good person. I diet. I'm very conscientious about what I eat. I'm a vegan or a vegetarian or I give to charity. I do the church thing. I'm a moral person. I work hard. I'm never late. People think if I can prove myself, if I can prove to myself that I'm a good person, if I can be justified by my morality, my good deeds, then I'll be accepted by God. So we start companies. We work hard for grades. We accumulate all the knowledge that we can we raise our kids as best we can we are impressed by our own creativity sometimes all if we're honest all in an effort just to justify ourselves to prove to ourselves that we're somebody that we're something that we're not nobodies that we don't need rescuing in um one of the rocky balboa films uh, the rocky films i think it's the first one uh rocky is a boxer who goes on to become champion of the world um that was the, you know, the reason why my brothers and I had a lot more fights than we probably should have done because we'd watch this film and get excited and then reenact it for ourselves. But in one of the Rocky films, his girlfriend, Adrian, is telling him, you'll never win this fight. Why are you fighting? It's dangerous. And he says, I know I won't win, but if I can go the distance, he says, I'll prove to myself that I'm not a bum. I'm not a nobody. People like Jonah, religious people, moral people, they think if I can just do something to justify myself to the world, to prove to myself I'm not a nobody. But the reality is those individuals are on the run from God, just as Jonah is, just as the sailors are. Both are lost. It's often the good person, the religious person, who's more lost. Because you see it time and again in the Bible, religious people don't know how lost they are. And the tragic thing is that sometimes immoral, unreligious people can come to churches because they know they need to sort their lives out. And they think, if I sort my life out means becoming more moral and religious and obeying all laws and becoming a good person, then I'll be saved, I'll be justified. The truth is, you can, go and, you can go from being lost because you're running away from God by indulging in all kinds of things, licentious pleasures. The truth is, you can end up in a church and be just as lost, but you're now a religiously lost person. And Jesus spent most of his time arguing with religious people, trying to convince them, but you're lost as well. You cannot be rescued or made right with God by doing good things. Those are the people that Jesus had the hardest time with. So what's the solution to our lostness? What's Jonah's solution? Well, Jonah reminds us not just of ourselves, but he reminds us of another, someone far better than us. In what we read, the sailors come down to him and say, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. As I read that, I'm reminded of another sleeper in the New Testament, Jesus, who's 
on a boat with his disciples when a storm breaks and he's asleep and the disciples are panicking. They think they're going to lose their life and so they come to Jesus and they tell him off. What are you doing sleeping? What do you mean by this sleeping? We're going to die, they say. Don't you care that we're going to die? And so what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't throw himself to the waves to rebuke the waves because he's done nothing wrong. He doesn't need to justify himself to the world. He doesn't need to atone for any guilt. That's what Jonah's doing. It looks very noble, but really he's aware, I'm a sinner, I deserve to die. Throw me overboard and God's wrath, God's anger will be satisfied. But Jesus, in this instance, he doesn't throw himself to the sea. He just rebukes the sea. He's quiet down, I'm in charge. I'm not Jonah. I'm not just another would-be prophet who's on the run from God. I've, hear, I've come to obey my Father's will is what Jesus says. Because Jesus has a different storm in mind that he's come to calm. The storm not just of the waves, but the storm of God's wrath and anger at sin globally. Whether it's running from God by being religious and moral like Jonah or running from God by being irreligious or immoral like the sailors with their different gods. Jesus has come to satisfy the anger of God and the storm of the, of the life that we find ourselves in by offering himself, not to the waves, but to death itself, to the grave. And Jesus did that. He died. And now we're all left on the boat without that storm threatening to kill us, or at least the offer of that storm being taken off us. And when you encounter the gospel story like that, you realize you cannot be made right with God, no matter how good you are, no matter how much you go to church, no matter what kind of a prophet you are. You might preach sermons and lead songs and bring prophecies like Jonah. You might be someone that God uses to heal the sick, but you cannot be saved or rescued from the wrath and anger of God at sin by doing that. No, no, no amount of that. You might as well give up now. You're lost if you think that you're a good person and that your goodness somehow earns you a merit before God. You're destined for the waves, destined for death. You're lost as well if you think that by running away from authority, running away from God, you can devote yourselves to other gods, other ways of living, and be happier, and find life there. The only way, when you hear that gospel, the only, the only response is a response of love and worship at this God. Though we deserve death has offered us life. Though we've run from him and offended him, has come to forgive us for our sin. God can ask anything of you. He can ask you to go anywhere, do anything, because you belong to him. And for some, if you're on the run from God, whether running by being good or by being bad, when you hear that, that can be terrifying. Because you think, I don't want that God to own me, to demand things of me. But when you see the face of God, in, you see the image of God in the face of Jesus and realize that's who God is, then to be owned by him, to belong to him, that's life and joy and peace and wonder. Everything we have is his. And it changes your loves, changes what you're devoted to. Jonah's devoted to his own self-righteousness. Proud of his status as prophet, son of Amittai. I speak for God, don't you know? I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Really? It looks like you're just after self-interest. You're on the run from God. 
Jonah's identity crisis and our identity crises are often a result of a misplaced devotion. We're devoted to ourselves, to solving our problems our way, rather than surrendering ourselves to him and saying, wow, look at Jesus. Let's respond together by worshipping and celebrating this Jesus, the one who calmed the storm of God's anger at death. Let's pray.